Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hi, Chelsea. Hey, Sarah. So today we are talking about Emma by Jane Austen, a book I know we both really love and are super excited to dive into. But before we really get started, I have one question for you. It's a simple question. Mr. Darcy or Mr. Knightley? Okay. I have always loved Mr. Knightley way more than Mr. Darcy. Mr. Knightley, tell us why. Well, I like Darcy a lot, but I think that I almost relate to him more myself of like, oh yeah, I don't really like people that much either. (laughs) Or (laughs) um, yes, if the person I had a crush on had a mother like Mrs. Bennet, I would want to stay far away too. (laughs) Totally fair. (laughs) that's a compliment to my (laughs) mother-in-law but Mr. Knightley's just dreamy Hmm. I agree I think Mr. Knightley is dreamy I love his care for Emma and we'll talk more about that in detail he is really self-assured and confident and I love that I still have to be on team Mr. Darcy because my husband reminds me more of Darcy than Knightley. Oh, that's really cute. <laughs> yeah. So Darcy forever, but Knightley. I can, if I could take them both, I would. Now that you put it like that, I, yeah, Curtis is more of a Knightley, which is so funny. <laughs> that is so funny. Well, well that makes sense. We cracked the us. case. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're both very lucky. <laughs> is really <laughs> the moral of that story. So, Chelsea, when did you first read Emma? What's your past experience with it? I first read Emma junior year of high school, and it was for a British literature class. It was very a very nerdy high school English class, and I loved it. And I absolutely fell in love with Emma. This was actually maybe the first Austen novel that I read in entirety. Oh, really? I think I read it even... Yeah, I think I read it before Pride and Prejudice. Wow. Yeah, I feel like this is one that people usually come to later. So that's really cool. Well, thanks, Mr. Balistrieri. But (laughs) uh, something that was really fun was uh, my junior year of high school was 2009, and that was the year that the Ramola Garai BBC four-episode version came out. I love that version. I only discovered that last year. Oh, really? Yes. I have been missing out for a decade. I love it. And I think that's part of what cemented Emma as a favorite for me especially because I was able to read the book and then watch the BBC, I think, at the same time. Like, I would 
read a few, several chapters of the book and then this was prior to like Netflix and Hulu streaming so I would actually literally sit in front of PBS and watch <laughs> the episode and you can't beat that experience no no definitely and that series is so phenomenal I'm excited to rewatch after we talk today I think that might be my my plan for the evening actually <laughs> Same. I watched the first episode, but I need to go and finish it after this. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually don't remember the first time that I read Emma. I feel like with most Jane Austen novels, it seems like they've always been part of my consciousness. It's hard to remember what I read first and exactly when I read them. I know that I I didn't read any Austen novels for school until grad school. So it was all on my own, picking up the books that I loved. I'm pretty sure I read Pride and Prejudice first. Emma was probably not far behind that. I would say for a long time, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, and Emma were the three that I had read multiple times before I ended up reading all all six eventually. But I, I love Emma, and I have put it in my curriculum before, but only as summer reading. So I haven't gotten a chance to really teach Emma other than, you know, the kids come in and you spend a week or so chatting about it before you move into to the other books. And, and to be quite honest, I wouldn't recommend that. I think for younger readers, this is a novel that it really helps to have some guidance on or the right kid to just pick it up because they love it. Forcing them to read it over summer was probably not the best way to help them fall in love with Austin. So let's do a quick summary of Emma for maybe people who haven't read it yet or haven't read it in a while before we dive into some of the more detailed discussion. Yes. And just as a note, we will share some spoilers on this podcast. And this is sort of a note overall for novel pairings in general, that these are old books that we're talking about at the front of our episodes. And if we ruin the book for you, so be it. <laughs> Some of these, you've had hundreds of years to read spoilers, so it's fine. Um, but most of the plot that we spoil is not going to be like make or break your reading experience. It's big things that you probably know just from general pop culture and, you know, literary consciousness and just stuff that's not going to ruin it, but hopefully will enhance your reading experience. So I think anything that we spoil with Emma or with other books that we talk about on here, I don't think it's going to ruin the book for anybody. So that's the goal is to help. Yes, absolutely. And and for many of these, going into the book, even for the first time, with a general sense of the plot will probably actually enhance the reading experience because then you can really pay attention to the details and the characterization. We think, we hope that this won't hurt anyone's reading experience of the classics and will only enhance it. All right, let's get into our summary. Jane Austen's final novel, Emma was published in 1815. The titular character, Emma Woodhouse, is wealthy, beautiful, and quick-witted. She also believes herself to be an excellent matchmaker. 
When her beloved nursemaid and companion, Miss Taylor, marries Mr. Weston, Emma finds a new friend in Harriet, a local girl whose parentage is unknown. Through a series of matchmaking foibles and failures, Emma learns that when it comes to love, people are best left to their own devices. In a romantic twist, she realizes that all along, she has been in love with Mr. Knightley, the longtime family friend who both challenges and adores her. However, readers' opinions of Emma vary. Austin famously said, I am going to take a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. And I'm really curious, Sarah, to hear what you think of Emma. I adore Emma Woodhouse. I mean, I totally understand what Jane Austen is saying. There are many of Emma's qualities that are unlikable, sometimes even detestable. But as a character, I find Emma fascinating and a rich characterization of a type of woman who maybe we didn't get to see in literature very often. I love that she's so different from other Austen heroines. She is certainly not the underdog like Elizabeth Bennet is or Fanny is in Mansfield Park. She has a lot more power and agency than some other heroines. How about you, Chelsea? I love her too. <laughs> uh, she's my favorite, even though I... <laughs> I have a very special relationship with Elizabeth Bennett that we'll get to when we do our Pride and Prejudice episode, but with other Austin heroines, I feel like there's this romantic sense of wanting to be them or wanting to be like them in that sort of girlish longing of, you know, wanting to be sort of the the underdog heroine or be swept off your feet a little bit. And then with Emma, like Emma's who I really am. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) And, you know, as we continue talking about Emma, maybe that is not everything. I'm not rich, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's start with that great opening line, because Pride and Prejudice gets all the love with its famous first sentence. But the first sentence of Emma sets us up to know so much about her. I mean, this is Jane Austen's mastery of the language where in a single sentence, we know almost everything we need to know about Emma as a character. So the novel begins, Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich with a comfortable home and happy disposition seem to unite some of the best blessings of existence and have lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress her. Oh, I just love that line. It's so good. And you get, even without a physical description, you get this vivid image of a bright, cheerful girl with pretty clothes and (laughs) not a care in the world. And it's (laughs) pleasant. Yes, absolutely. And I think that it's, it's pleasant. And even within the like sparkly picture we get of Emma in those three perfect words, handsome, clever, and rich, there's also a little bit of a hint of what might unfold here for Emma because she's lived in the world with very little to distress her. And if she's made it to, to 21 and had not much to that didn't go her way, we know we're looking forward to a novel where maybe something 
changes in that regard. And she has to deal with disappointment for the first time. Yeah, there's that unspoken until now. Yes, (laughs) totally. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about how it's important in this book that we know right away that she's 21 years old because in Regency England, 21 would be the age of marital consent, where a young woman could decide whom to marry without necessarily getting her father's blessing. And so Austin is also telling us right away the choice of partnership, and this is going to be Emma's. Emma is, if she's interested in matrimony, which she has various opinions on throughout the book, she's she has agency, whereas some other women in Austin novels do not. Yeah, and I think that's part of what makes this one of my favorite books is that Emma is the ruler of her life as much as she can be for a woman in the Regency period. And she is the one moving the plot forward. Things aren't happening to her. Things are happening to everyone around because of Emma. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes that's a flaw because she can play with some of some of the other characters almost like they're dolls. She brings them into her life. She arranges them as she sees fit. And that's not always the most admirable characteristic of Emma's. But I wholeheartedly agree with you. I love seeing a heroine who is the one moving the plot forward, bringing all these characters together. She really is the central figure of this book. Everyone else revolves around her. And even the name of the novel tells us that. This is the only one of Austen's novels where the heroine is also the title. And I love what that, I mean, it just says everything you need to know about the book, just like the first line, the between the first line and the title, we get it. But just to cut to the heart of it, Emma is bossy and it comes back to bite her. And I <laughs> relate to that very strongly. <laughs> Yeah, she is bossy. And let's talk about some of the ways that she likes to boss people around. I think the primary one in this book is her friendship with Harriet Smith. As you mentioned in your summary, Emma, at the start of the novel, has lost her governess and longtime nursemaid and really best friend, Miss Taylor. And by lost, I mean that Miss Taylor got married and moved three quarters of a mile away. So (laughs) it's not like they're no longer in each other's lives, but she used to live at Emma's house and be her constant companion and she's not anymore. So Emma is on the lookout for a new best friend and she settles on Harriet, who is a 17 year old who has been growing up um, almost in It's a school for girls. Um, Some girls are orphans or some girls have parents who can't afford to send them to really fancy schools, but send them to this school to be educated in the capacity that girls were educated at this time. And so that friend is Harriet. And what do you think about Emma's relationship, friendship with Harriet? So we... Because of the way that the story is told, we never really get to see anything from Harriet's perspective. So for the most part, we see Emma treating Harriet as sort of like, oh, I'm going to mentor her into the best person she can be. And Emma's really snobby about it too. She's like, well, you know, I'm going to 
you know, bring Harriet up to my level and make her sort of, you know, worthy of being around me. And so that def- it definitely highlights Emma's uh, the the bad side of Emma's being spoiled and her place in the world. But I mean, as a in general, their relationship always bugged me because it is so one sided, and I I think it would be a really kind of boring friendship. Emma kind of has, as you said, this like Pygmalion view of Harriet, like she wants to mold her into her perfect friend and she sees in Harriet someone who is easily molded. Her first description of Harriet, she says, Harriet was certainly not clever, but she had a sweet, docile, grateful disposition, was totally free from conceit and only desiring to be guided by anyone she looked up to. So we know right away that Emma has chosen Harriet because of the way that Harriet looks up to her and adores her and can really be led by Emma. Yeah, and then when you think of it in another way, for a woman at that time, like really the only thing that Emma can possibly do with her cleverness, because she's real smart to her detriment. (laughs) The only thing thing that she can do with that that's acceptable in society is match people up and – get people together. Yeah. Yeah, and and in a way, I mean, I think that Emma really believes that she's doing good by Harriet. She she thinks her mentorship will better Harriet's life and in some ways it really it really does. She she wants to kind of raise Harriet up. We we should mention that Harriet, as you said, we her parentage is unknown, which means she's probably somebody's illegitimate daughter. And her parents haven't acknowledged her, which is really tragic and not something that Austin dwells on at all in this novel. But I think is something that hits me as more of an adult reader is that this is a 17-year-old kid who doesn't know who her parents are and all of a sudden is being given so much attention by really kind of the first lady of this small English village. (laughs) <laughs> That's such a good way to put it. <laughs> she really walks around like she's the princess. Oh, 100%. And she has never been anywhere else. So I can't fault her for that. I mean, she is the queen bee of Highbury. And she's the Lorelei Gilmore. Totally. <laughs> yes. And her father never lets her travel anywhere. We'll get to Mr. Woodhouse, of course. But it really that really impacts Emma's sense of her own self-importance. Oh, definitely. So as we get into the side characters here, as we were talking about Harriet, I kept thinking of how she's such a foil for Mr. Knightley. Ooh, I love that. I hadn't thought of that at all. We just have Emma in the middle and then her relationship with Harriet. She's able to really manipulate her. Harriet worships her. There's a friendship there. But then Emma's relationship and her friendship with Mr. Knightley, Mr. Knightley loves Emma, but he challenges her and he says, Emma, that was wrong. And he sort of pushes back on her and he doesn't sort of, you know, treat her like the princess that everyone else does. (laughs) There's that social component of that of Harriet is of a lower class. And at that time, she was unable to treat Emma as an equal. 
compared to Mr. Knightley, who has the benefit of being the same social class and a man. Right. Very important. And yeah, so he can actually tell Emma, hey, that was bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And not only does Harriet allow herself to be kind of bossed around by Emma, and as you said, for good reason, that she didn't have really the social currency to be able to stand up for herself. But she definitely invites Emma into that. She asks Emma's opinion on almost everything. Of course, the most important example of that is when Mr. Martin proposes to Harriet. I think it's very clear to us as readers that Harriet has a little bit of a crush on Mr. Martin and would be totally happy to marry him. But she asks Emma's advice and Emma pretends that she's not giving advice while (laughs) basically forcing Harriet to refuse his proposal. And then Emma basically writes the refusal herself in letter format. And that, as you said, is such an essential foil to Mr. Knightley, who cares about Emma's opinion about things, but isn't going to let her run away with her ideas. He's he's definitely the voice of reason throughout the entire novel. And Emma is imaginative and romantic. And I think he loves those things about her and we love those things about her. I just want to follow up on one thing you said about Emma, which I think is a really overlooked element of her character, which is her imagination. She is so imaginative. And when you were talking about the few avenues that a woman had to exhibit her intelligence, this kind of imagination really is one of those elements. Like she doesn't have TV. She has a strange relationship with books, which we should talk about. (laughs) But she really spends her time like thinking in really inventive ways about different pairings of people and how people's lives might turn out. And I love that about her. I I think she is kind of a daydreamer and really innovative in how she thinks about the world and the people around her. She totally is. And yeah, we see that with who she tries to pair up with whom because it's often a stretch. (laughs) We're like, in what universe, Emma, is that going to (laughs) work? And then also uh, one other example of her being such a daydreamer is uh, with Frank Churchill, who's a character who doesn't show up until like halfway through the novel. Yes. And yet he's always on Emma's mind and she knows about him and she's got like big plans for him when he does show up. Major plans. While Emma is professedly never going to get married, if she married anyone, it was going to be Frank Churchill, which (laughs) (laughs) she's never met him. But she just knows they belong together. I love that. So one of the joys of reading Emma is some of the twists and turns because of the things that Emma as a an observer misses. What did you think about the plot twists and when did you see them kind of developing throughout the novel? It was interesting reading this again and being able to see everything coming much sooner than the first time and definitely a big indicator of when there's going to be a major plot twist or something happening is Mr. Knightley 
comes over and has a conversation with Emma and tells Emma, hey, I heard that you're doing this thing and it's a really bad idea. And Emma goes, no, I'm right. And they disagree. And then she's kind of torn up about their friendship. And then Mr. Knightley ends up being right. (laughs) It's so true. He really is, as you said, the voice of reason and also the the biggest element of foreshadowing throughout the novel are his observations. I do love how when he comes over and he tells Emma about an observation, for example, he notices something about Frank Churchill and he tells Emma about it. When Emma disagrees, Knightley listens to her. He doesn't dismiss her disagreement, which I really appreciate even though he almost always turns out to be right, he doesn't throw that in her face. He respects her opinion as well. He does. They have a real mutual respect for each other, and he doesn't just treat her like she's being silly. No. Even though sometimes she kind of is. <laughs> yeah, I think he wants her to come to those realizations herself, and and he will step in and correct her when she commits a big faux pas when he really feels like he needs to kind of show her where she was wrong. Yes. Even then I was going to say it always comes from a place of love and caring for her and not, he, he never rubs it in her face when he ends up being right. He just sort of lets it play out. He, he approaches her because he cares about her and he doesn't want her to get caught up in something bad. He doesn't want her to be hurt by a mistake. And you can definitely see that throughout the novel, which is, I think, what what makes him so swoon-worthy. Yeah, absolutely. I I love, in terms of the twists in this novel, how Austin makes some of them quite evident to the reader right away, while others she really adeptly hides until the very end. So I think when a reader picks Emma up for the first time, it's quite clear that Mr. Elton does not have feelings for Harriet, in spite of how many times Emma tells us that he does. We see that one coming. Then there are a few others where it's really a joy to find out as they unfold. Yeah, A secret lover's plot sounds very scandalous for a Jane Austen novel, and yet, here it is in Emma. Here it is, and it's so surprising. I think that's one thing we don't want to spoil. (laughs) No, we don't. But we can talk about perhaps one of the sort of mysterious characters that shows up later on in the book, and there's a lot of mystery surrounding her. I think that we could go into without spoiling too much of the plot. Absolutely. You must be talking about Miss Jane Fairfax. I am. And Jane is a really fun character because she's a little bit of a rival with Emma, not overtly, but in Emma's head at least, Jane is sort of a rival because she's very beautiful and talented and her family brags about her all the time in the village. And so she's got this really great reputation. And so when she shows up in town, Emma's not the only sparkling gem anymore. And (laughs) it throws her for a loop, which is really fun to watch. Totally. Yes. It's, 
it's really fun to watch. And we know that Emma often visits Jane Fairfax's family. They're a family who had been wealthy and lost all of their wealth. And so now it's two women, a mother and a daughter, living on their own. And Emma goes to visit them, kind of it's almost charity that she goes to visit them. And they always want to talk to her about Jane Fairfax and what Jane's doing. And they read Jane's letters to Emma over and over. And these moments are some of the times when I think we really see Emma's negative qualities. She's really a snob. She hates these visits. She hates hearing about Jane. Yes, but to be fair, I would get sick of hearing about the same thing every time I went to visit someone, too. Oh, totally. And the Miss Bates monologues that go on for pages and pages, even as a reader, I'm like, okay, skip this. So I I don't blame Emma. Um, But because we're in her mind, we get to see some of those kind of snide thoughts that she has about these women. Maybe it makes maybe it means I'm terrible, but I really like no. when Emma's being snide and sassy about everybody else. I agree. I think that it's rare to get a heroine, especially from this time period, who is like this. And I love that she has her own opinions, even though they're sometimes negative opinions. I think it's almost empowering. And it's also amazing to me that a lot of her snark is directed at Jane Fairfax, who quite honestly is a much more traditional Austin heroine. She's an orphan. She's an underdog. She's beautiful, but not rich. She's perhaps destined for life as a governess with no marital prospects. Like Austin could have written a novel entirely about Jane Fairfax. Instead, we get Emma's snobby remarks about how Jane Fairfax is much too reserved to be a good friend to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) But to everyone else, she'll say, oh, she's so handsome. (laughs) It's like the the classic, like to everyone else, oh, I love Jane. And then behind her back, oh, she's so annoying. (laughs) Yes, it's a very Regina George moment. (laughs) Definitely. I love it. I absolutely love it. I love it too. We can't hate on Emma. We adore her. I think just with the way that this is narrated, we we get to see it's it's not first person, so we're not actually inside Emma's head, but it's told from her perspective. So we see her make a mistake. And then the next chapter might be Emma thinking about her mistake and feeling guilty and sort of beating herself up about it. So she does feel guilt. It's not like she just goes and manipulates everyone around her and then has no consequences. No, she really grows. And she grows even in her views of other characters, the characters who she is mean to or snobby towards. By the end of the book, she really has recognized that. And she's tried to make amends for it. And she even makes some comments about characters like Jane Fairfax that are really genuine compliments. She's really in kind of working to better herself throughout the book. She's able to be happy for other people and see them in a new light. I know we promised we weren't going to get too academic on our podcast, but you mentioned the narration and I would love to get a little teachery and 
talk about that for a minute if you're okay with it. I'm always okay with it. Please do. (laughs) So this book, like all of Jane Austen's novels, but I think it is most prominent in this book, is told through a narrative style that's called free indirect style. And the name doesn't really matter. It's just a fancy English majory term. But this is basically a narrative style that Jane Austen invented. And it's a technique where the author shifts the point of view back and forth from a third person narrator to the character's mind. And so it becomes almost impossible to tell the difference between what the narrator is saying and what the primary character is saying. So it's a great way of creating an unreliable narration, but still giving the reader a more holistic picture of what's going on in the novel. And so we move in and out of Emma's mind and she is a unreliable but wonderful narrator because of how she sees the world. And because we get to see all of Highbury and all of the plot through her eyes, that's another reason I think we really fall in love with her because we understand why she makes the mistakes she does because we've seen the characters from her perspective. Yeah. And I, yes, I don't know that I have anything to add. (laughs) (laughs) I'll add that there's just one chapter in the whole book that's still uses free and direct style, but it focuses on another character and that's Mr. Knightley. So we get one chapter where we get to be in his mind. And I think that's another another reason we as readers fall in love with him is we see, oh, wow, he's just as observant and interested in the people around him as Emma is. And maybe these two would make a good match. Power couple more like. (laughs) Yes, 100%. They're both super smart. Yes, absolutely. So smart. They, They belong together. They do. And they're pretty and they are going to live in a big, huge house. It's, I mean, it's totally swoonworthy and romantic. I think this is the most swoonworthy ending of all of the Austin novels. I'll probably take that back. The last one I've read is always the one I find most swoonworthy. That's me too. My favorite always changes based on whatever I just read of hers. But this one does really stick in my mind. There's something super romantic, I think, about the friends to lovers romance trope. And this is probably the best example of that. We didn't mention this, but Emma and Mr. Knightley have known each other her whole life since she was born. He's quite a bit older than her. I was going to say, there's a 16-year age difference, which feels a little bit Leonardo DiCaprio to me, but I'm going to ignore it for the sake of historical time period. Agree. Doesn't bother me in this one. No. (laughs) We're just going to mention that and move on. (laughs) Exactly. So what do you think, Chelsea? What are your biggest thematic takeaways after reading Emma this time around? The thing that I noticed most on this reading was the importance of female companionship. And I think that it's probably because it's something that I'm thinking about a lot lately in my own life. And, you know, that just happens when you read a book. Yes. That's the magic of it. But with Emma's relationships, 
The relationships that are even more important to her than romance are her female friends. The book starts with her and Miss Taylor and the promises that they make to see each other and sort of what's going to happen to Emma now that her best friend is gone. And her friendship with Harriet, I just think it's because Emma needs a companion. So even though Mr. Knightley visits all the time, even though Emma lives with her father and, you know, he's always there, I think that she would be so lonely without her girlfriends. And it's such a part of why she tries to shape Harriet the way she does, because she doesn't want to lose her. Um, In the book, it gets mentioned that if Harriet does marry Mr. Martin, she's going to be of a lower class. And Emma can just simply not associate with her if (laughs) Harriet stoops so low as to that, which is kind of ridiculous. Because Emma could technically still see her if she wanted to, but, and I, you know, I think Emma realizes that later on in the book that, you know, she can let go of some of these lines that she's drawn, but that the core of that, even though we can see it as annoying, is that Emma loves having friends. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I love the quest for female friendships in this book and how for the whole novel, Emma is pursuing friends, not a romantic relationship. The romantic relationship just falls into her lap when she finally realizes who she's supposed to be with, but it's the friendships that she's really pursuing throughout. Yes. It's truly the definition of being happy when you're single so that then when love finds you, you're just, you know, you're ready, you're, you're happy, you're happy with yourself, you're happy with your life. When I forget if it's Harriet that asks Emma if she will ever get married, Emma basically says, I can go live with my sister and I'll have nieces and nephews to keep me company. I'll never be lonely. I'll have my friends, but I don't, I don't need a husband to make my life complete. And I just, I love that about her. I do love that she ends up finding a husband because Mr. <laughs> Knightley is great. Yes. But I I love that sentiment of her not needing that romantic relationship and being so content as long as she has female companionship to keep her mind busy and to just, you know, keep her happy. Totally. And I think that connects really well to my biggest takeaway from the book was that the best relationships are the ones that make you a better person. And Emma is with Mr. Knightley because they make each other better, not because she needs to be with a husband, which is wonderful. Knightley really wants Emma to be the best version of herself. He challenges her to question her choices. And as we mentioned, that's not for the sake of being critical or for him wanting to be right. It's for Emma's happiness and well-being. I also think that Austin is suggesting that the female friendships should also work to make people better. And that's why Emma and Jane Fairfax really, I hope that they become friends after this novel because Jane's reserve and kind of diligence and attention to practicing the skills that she possesses like piano and reading and things like that would really benefit Emma and Emma's openness and generosity and charm would really benefit Jane. And I think that 
Austin wants both romantic relationships and friendships to be those relationships that make us the best versions of ourselves. When you mention Emma and Jane possibly being friends, I mean, I can completely picture it and they seem destined to be buddies and just even their life circumstances being different. There are so many characters in this novel who are in different places in their life, whether that means social status, how much money they have, how they grew up, what age they are, and the way that they all interact with each other and learn things from each other. I think is another lesson that we can take away. And I don't know that there's an ensemble cast in any other Austin novel that really does that and gives us that rich sense of community and village the way that this one does. That's such a good point. I I think we root for the whole community. We fall in love with not just the individual characters, but how they relate to each other and how they want the best for each other. And it's really nice to see. I think that is a huge part of what makes this an enduring classic and one that a lot of readers still find a lot of fulfillment in. We'll be back with our pairings after a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. Sarah, we both love audiobooks. We give each other audiobook recommendations all the time. So I'm curious to hear what you're listening to on Libro FM lately. I am actually taking one of your recommendations and I am about to start Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage. That's such a good book. That's what you've told me. I really can't wait. I'm excited for you to listen to that one. I just finished an audiobook, so I need to choose my next one. But when I don't have a recommendation from you, Sarah, I like to go on their website and see what the booksellers are recommending right now. I actually see one of our upcoming pairings on that list. Yes, that is such a great way to narrow down your choices. Two of my most recent favorites are She Said by Megan Tuohy and Jody Cantor. So good. I love nonfiction on audio, and this one is superb. Or for a fiction favorite, The World That We Knew by Alice Hoffman. Listeners, you could get both of those titles and Emma from Libro FM for just $15. That's three audiobooks for the price of one. That's the same monthly price as Audible, but your money goes to support local bookstores, so you just get to choose which bookstore you want to support, and your monthly subscription goes right to their pocket. I don't have a local bookstore where I live, so I chose to support the bookshelf in Thomasville with my subscription, but I think you have a local bookstore, Sarah. I do. I support Book Bar right here in Denver. I love that you can pick a bookstore anywhere and change it anytime. Listeners, you can get three audiobooks for the price of one with the code Novel Pairings. Just enter code Novel Pairings or click on the Libro FM link in our show notes. All right, Sarah, before we get into our pairings, which books we would like to pair with Emma for this episode, if you want to just give a little bit of backstory to remind our listeners of what our format is here and what these pairings are all about, that would be great. Absolutely. So you and I are both big believers that the classics are important in part because contemporary literature is in conversation with them. Similar themes come up in today's books, similar topics. We're still wrestling with the same questions as humans in many ways. So we see a lot of those similar ideas in today's literature. So we thought it would be fun to, for each classic novel we discuss, to select a few books that we think 
speak to similar ideas or offer similar insights or maybe even push back on the ideas presented in the classics. So today, each of us are going to offer three books that we think pair well with Jane Austen's Emma. Chelsea, do you want to tell us about your first pairing? Sure. The first book that I chose is really a nod to the lady herself, Jane Austen. I chose The Jane Austen Project by Kathleen A. Flynn. And this is a really fun book. It's inspired by Jane Austen's work, but it's not a retelling. So researchers from the future are sent back in time to 1815 to recover a lost manuscript from Jane Austen. So listeners might remember 1815 is the year that Emma was published. And these researchers integrate into her community and they make friends with her and they just live the whole Regency life. They do the thing all the way. And it fits really well with any of her novels, but Emma specifically... I think it just fits really well because they go to social gatherings. There's just daily life stuff on the page in the way that there is in Emma. There's this sense of neighbors and community. And also it features a smart, savvy, modern heroine who really struggles with the constrictions placed on her in order for her to be a realistic Regency woman. She has to to really push down a lot of her modern sensibilities and modern personality in order to fit in. And so I think that that fits really well with what we see from Emma. Such a good pick. I thought that book was really fun as well. My first pairing is totally different. It is Spinster by Kate Bollock. And this is general nonfiction. It kind of functions as both a sociological examination of single women throughout history, but it's also a memoir about Bollock's decision to remain single herself. There's so much anxiety about spinsterhood in Jane Austen novels, particularly in Emma. We see Miss Bates the spinster, Jane Fairfax as a character has that future perhaps looming over her, and Emma herself often insists that she will never marry. So I think Spinster is a great pairing for Emma because it really examines what options women had for remaining single, which were very few (laughs) historically, and what expectations still exist around marriage now. Bollock begins her book by stating whom to marry and when it will happen. These two questions define every woman's existence. I almost feel like Jane Austen could have written that sentence because so many of her novels revolve around that idea. I really enjoyed this book. I've seen some reviews where some readers find Kate Bollock, the author, to be a little self-centered. Honestly, I feel like that just makes it pair even better with Emma. But if you're looking for a similar book without that personal element, Rebecca Traster's All the Single Ladies would be another good option in this category. My next pick is Queenie by Candace Carty Williams. And the first thing that stands out as a pairing with Emma is that the novel is titled after the main character. One word, just the name, and I love that. So Queenie is a 25-year-old Jamaican-British woman living in London, and she just went through a really horrible breakup, and she makes this series of terrible decisions 
among those ignoring some pressing mental health issues that you can tell that she's ignoring, but they're just really creeping up on her and affecting her life. Her friends are frustrated with her. She's frustrated with herself. And what follows throughout the book is this journey of her self-discovery and how she makes amends, how she sort of leans on the people who love her and want to take care of her, and how she really grows up. And her journey reminds me of Emma's from sort of being a little bit terrible (laughs) to... (laughs) learning important lessons, but I was rooting for Queenie the entire time. I know some readers feel very strongly like they fall in love with her right away, or some are super annoyed with her. And I think that reflects the same relationship that a lot of us have with Emma. But I was rooting for Queenie, and every time she made a mistake, I just, I felt it for her. And then I was really happy by the end when she does turn things around. It's not like I'm spoiling anything. I think it's it's good to go into the novel knowing that she'll turn out okay. I really want to read that one. I, I remember you really enjoying it when you picked it up last year, so it's on my list. I think you would really like it. My second book is Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. This book has been all over the internet, very popular 2020 release, and I think it just fits so well with Emma. So this book follows two or three main characters. Amira is probably our main character. She is a 25-year-old Black woman living in Philadelphia, and she's trying to figure out her life. And in as she's figuring out what she wants to do with herself, she has been working this babysitting job. She's the babysitter for a pretty adorable girl named Briar. And Amira's relationship with Briar's mom, Alix, is kind of the central point of the novel. The novel begins when Alix calls Amira over late at night. They're having a family emergency, and she asks Amira to just get Briar out of the house for a little bit. Amira takes Briar to a swanky grocery store in Alix's neighborhood, and while she's at that grocery store, a security guard accuses her of kidnapping Briar. Obviously, there are a lot of racial tensions there, and the rest of the book explores the ripple effects of this incident in subtle but also pretty poignant ways. I think this book pairs really well with Emma in large part because of the themes. It's a book about privilege and how privilege can blind us and make us think we know what's best while really limiting our ability to understand other people's perspectives. Also, as much as I adore Emma, I think if Emma lived in the 21st century and she didn't have Mr. Knightley calling her on her snobbery, she might end up a lot like Alix. Alix is snobby, she's naive, she's meddling, she needs to surround herself with flatterers. All some of Emma's worst traits that she corrects by the end of the novel. I will have to let you read Such a Fun Age to find out if the same holds true for Alix. I loved Such a Fun Age specifically on audio. My last pairing for us is a retelling. I love Austin retellings. 
So this one is If I Loved You Less by Tamsin Parker, and it is an LGBT romance, and it is also closed door, which means that there are no sexy times on the page. There might be some kissing. So those I think that's important to know before um, opening up the book, just based on personal preference with open door romance or closed door. And it's a direct retelling of Emma. It is set in Hawaii. Theodosia is one of our main characters and she loves playing matchmaker and she's generally really pleased with herself and the life that she's created in in her town but she really wants to make the baker down the street her next project however the baker Kinney is not having it so mistakes are made until finally Theodosia realizes that she and Kinney are meant to be together and I love that the title is a nod to what I think is the most romantic line in Emma. If I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more, which is what Mr. Knightley says to Emma when he's admitting that he's in love with her. Have I told you that that quote was in my wedding vows? No! Yes. I can't believe that hasn't been brought up yet. <laughs> I love that quote so much. That's so sweet. I love that. Yeah, I think that's a great pick. And I also love Austin retelling. So I'll have to add that one to my list as well. What is your final pick for us? My final pick is To All the Boys I've Loved Before by Jenny Han. So this is a very popular book. But if you're unfamiliar with it, it follows Laura Jean. She is a junior in high school and a major romantic She has fallen in love exactly five times in her life, and every time she falls in love, she writes a letter to that boy explaining her feelings. But she doesn't send these letters. She puts them in a box and holds on to them, kind of to remind herself of how she felt about each of these relationships. Somehow, these letters get out into the world and into their recipient's hands, And for the rest of the book, Laura Jean has to navigate the consequences of that. Some of that includes an adorable fake relationship with the charming Peter Kavinsky. It's adorable. It's a very sweet high school romance. You and I have talked a little bit, Chelsea, about how Austin novels make for great YA because some of those Regency constraints are... Hard to transfer to modern life, but they actually transfer well to modern high schools because of the limits on teenagers' lives, as well as kind of the social hierarchy at work in in high schools. And so this isn't a retelling of Austin, but those same concerns um, exist in Laura Jean's life as exist in, in Emma's. There are also a lot of little parallels here. Laura Jean has a single father. There are various relationship setups throughout the book, and Laura Jean's sister and closest confidant has just moved away, so she's lost that important relationship in her life. I also think that while Laura Jean is much more traditionally lovable and much more of an underdog than Emma, they have some similarities in their romantic natures and their tendencies to let their imaginations run away with them. I completely agree with the romantic imagination with Lara Jean, which I think is so adorably depicted in the movie version. I agree. All right. So we're going to 
wrap this episode up with our picks of the week. And in this final segment, Chelsea and I will share something that's not a book that we are currently loving. As much as we can, we'll try to connect these to the book that we're discussing this episode. We don't make any promises about that for every single classic, but we like to try to tie these classics into other pop culture elements as well, as much as possible. So Chelsea, what is your pick? So since we've been thinking and chatting about the Emma retellings and the new movie that's coming out, I thought of one of my favorite Emma modern adaptations, which is Emma Approved. It's a YouTube series and it's modern retelling where Emma is basically like a lifestyle guru matchmaker and it's just really well done. And I actually, I do think I will say that the Emma approved Emma maybe bugs me a little bit more than Austin's Emma in a good way though, in, in a way that pays off in the end that I really appreciate. And I think it's just a really smart retelling and well worth watching. If you have just like 10 minutes over your lunch hour, it's easy to squeeze in an episode and I just think it's really cute. So I haven't watched it in a long time. I kind of want to go back and watch it now after the reread, but it's, yeah, it's worth worth a watch. Emma approved on YouTube. What's your pick? My pick this week is Fleabag, the amazing Phoebe Waller-Bridge's show. I'm under no illusion that I am the first person to recommend this to you listeners, but I think there are some really fun connections with Emma here. First of all, I recently learned that Phoebe Waller-Bridge's sister, Isabel, wrote the score for Fleabag, which I absolutely loved. And she is she composed the score for the new Emma adaptation, which is really cool. Another connection, I was reading a review of the new Emma movie and the director made a comment about how we couldn't have Fleabag if we didn't have Emma. And her point was, Emma was one of the original, slightly self-absorbed, but lovable female characters. These characters who have some major flaws, but we really root for. So even though I've already watched Fleabag, I'm sure many of you have already watched Fleabag, I'm excited to give it a rewatch and think about all of those Emma connections that I maybe missed the first time. I love that show so much. It's phenomenal. All right, Sarah, it was so fun to chat with you about Emma today. It was so fun. I feel like we could have talked about Emma for another three hours, and maybe we will offline, but this was so fun. Most likely we'll we'll talk more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We actually do have a bonus episode coming up. We're going to see the movie and record our thoughts about the new Emma movie, so stay tuned for that. Can't wait. But for more Classic Lit enthusiasm and podcast news in the meantime, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Novel Pairings Pod. We'd love to know whether you pick up Emma or any of the books we mentioned today, so feel free to tag us. Tell your friends about the Novel Pairings Podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing our most recent episode on social media. 
we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How soon one tires of anything other than a book. We'll be back soon with an episode on the movie version of Emma, and then The Awakening by Kate Chopin.